Um, so we are turning this morning um, to the Gospel of Mark. Um, we are... Your Bibles might be falling more easily open to Habakkuk at the moment. That has really been a great series, hasn't it? I've said to Andrew a couple of times, I don't care if I was the only person in the room, it has really been speaking to me. But I do know from conversations with many of you that that is definitely not the case. It's really been a word in season. And he says if if he's got an enemy, we'll finish the series. He'll see how it goes. That's what he said. Um, So anyway, before we read from the word this morning, let let me just pray. Father, we're just really aware of your presence with us this morning. And so as we come to read your word this morning, we just know that your promise in our lives, God, is that you finish what you start that you are at work in each one of us, that you are personally able to speak to each one of us this morning. And so, God, I pray that as we read your word and as I share this morning, God, that you would breathe your life on it. For each one of us, we would hear exactly what it is that you want us to hear, but that, Father, we would not merely hear, but that, Father, we would also uh, just follow your leading to apply that into our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. I don't think I'd given you the address, did I? Um, So Mark 10, and we're going to be starting at verse 35. This story makes me laugh a bit. Um, So, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. I mean, you could sort of think, well, they're putting into application, aren't they, what he taught them? Ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. But, oh, don't don't you just love their (coughs) boldness? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I kind of wonder what the facial expression was there. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised. And they said to him, we are able. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now the rest of them get in on the action. And then the ten heard it, and they began to be indignant with James and John. Ah, family squabbles. And they called, sorry, and then Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I was preparing for today's message, I did a quick Google search on how to be great. It probably doesn't surprise you to know that literally hundreds of results came up. The internet and our bookshops are filled with books and articles on how to be successful, how to build a great life, a great business, and so on. All of it a telling sign of just how obsessed we as humans are with measuring our worth by our achievement and our position. But we don't need to be a megalomaniac to actually want to live a great life. If I was to survey each one of you here this morning, I'm quite sure that most of us don't want to just be mediocre. And this is partly where James and John, the big-mouthed sons of thunder, are as they approach Jesus with this bold request. I find it really interesting that in Matthew's account of this, it's actually their mother who goes and asks um, on their behalf. There can be ambitious mothers too. Um, yeah. <laughs> Amen. They, along with the disciples, really believed at this point, even though Jesus had been talking to them about his death and resurrection, they continued to believe at this point that what Jesus was going to do was establish an actual earthly kingdom. And so James and John were seeking promotion. They wanted a place of prominence in this new regime. They wanted to be seen with Jesus, to be seated on his right and his left as he ruled in his new kingdom. They didn't want to just be mediocre. What I find interesting about this is that Jesus didn't actually nail them to the wall about their desire to be great. He didn't shoot them down or rebuke them or start telling them about how, what an audacity they had to ask of this. Instead, he reveals to them how greatness is measured in his kingdom. Suffering and servitude. I'm not sure that that would make the New York Times bestseller list, hey? The pathway to greatness, suffering and servitude. When you look at where this request is positioned in the chronology of their time with Jesus, there is actually an irony in James and John's timing of their request. Jesus has literally just finished telling them how he will suffer and what he will endure at his death. And here they are jostling for position and prominence. 
But this is not the first time this has happened. If your Bibles are still open, you can flick back to Mark 9. And you'll see that again, the last time that Jesus spoke and foretold about his death and resurrection, that he had another issue to address with the disciples at that point. And we'll pick it up in verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Just a side note, if God asks you what you've been talking about, hint, he actually already knows. So he says, what were you discussing on the way? (laughs) But they kept silent because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. So what is it that causes us as humans to jostle for position and importance? And clearly, from these readings, this is actually not a problem limited to our generation. How do we really measure greatness? Not just what you think the right answer is, but how do we really measure greatness? Is it having the biggest influence, being the loudest or the most well-known, earning the most, being the best in our field, having the most likes on a social media platform, being the top of our class, or producing successful kids. And what does it say about us if we don't make the grade, if they are our measures of greatness and a successful life? Clearly, this is not heaven's measure. Jesus's is an upside-down kingdom where firsts are last and lasts are first and up is down and down is up. I wonder if, like me, you ever get blown away by the truth that Jesus, the King of glory, came to serve rather than to be served. The one who set the stars in place the one who left the radiant glory of heaven for us, the eternal God, came in humility as a vulnerable baby. He lived 30 years in obscurity, training and working to be a tradie. He had only three years of ministry, surrounded, as we've seen, by some fairly daft interns. He predominantly invested in 12 young men rather than having a megachurch and he didn't have millions of Facebook followers. He hung out with the down and outs rather than the prominent people of his time. He was persecuted, rejected, falsely accused and ultimately executed. I'm not sure but by the world standards that his would be classified as a successful life. 
but according to Jesus' words and actions, greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by servanthood. And in that, he is indeed the greatest. When we look at that passage in Mark, Jesus actually uses some pretty strong language when he's speaking to his disciples. He says, to be great, you must be a servant. You must be a slave. If I'm honest, I'm actually a bit uncomfortable with the presence of the word must. He's not simply making a suggestion to be servant-hearted. And I think there's a tension for us in this. If you've been at our church, even for a small amount of time, then perhaps you will be aware that we have a particular approach to serving here. We actually intentionally choose to both encourage and give people six months to settle in to allow you to receive from God, to allow you to get to know who we are as a church family, for us to get to know you. We are not a church that on your first Sunday here or even your eighth Sunday here are looking to try and sign you up. And this was something that Justin and I very much appreciated when we came here 17 years ago. See, we'd come from a pretty small church congregation I'd newly committed my life to the Lord and Justin was a new Christian and we were asked to serve in that church immediately and our obligations mounted very quickly. And so when we arrived at Vision, we were pretty tired and worn out and it was really unfamiliar to us to not be pressed straight into serving. And some of you may have a similar story. And in case you are wondering this morning, I'm not preaching a message on serving just so that we can fill our rosters. What I do want to do, though, is I want to stir our hearts with the truth that if we want to be like Jesus, who is the true servant of all, then serving will be part of our normal Christian life. So what is serving from a kingdom perspective? Why and how do we live a life that is servant-hearted? At its core, serving as believers in Christ is a heart issue more than it is a doing issue. It is completely possible to be doing the stuff and not be servant-hearted. Would you agree? You see, service is much more than just work. It's not even good work. True service, whilst it may actually be done to benefit others, is primarily for the pleasure and under the direction of the Lord. It's being about our Father's business. That's how Jesus described it as he served on the earth. I'm going about my father's business. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I would love to say that that is fully and completely applied in my life 100% of the time. I would love to tell you that I always serve only for the audience of one and with the pure motive of only being about my father's business. But if I'm honest, my motives are not always that pure. You see, I have served to please myself for gain, to please others, out of ambition, to look good, to try and appease my guilt, to try and control or fix a situation, to feel needed, and for my own advancement. Being completely honest with you, I have at times chosen tasks so that people can see, drawn attention to my serving, complained about my serving in the hopes that people will notice how much it's cost me and humphed when someone else gets the credit for something that I did. That's a real test of your heart, hey? But all of this is quite literally self-serving. When our gaze is directed towards God instead of self, when our hearts and our minds are fixed on him, on what he has done for us, for who he is, that he is worthy of our everything, then it is possible to serve as an act of worship, as an offering, as a demonstration of our devotion to him, and as an overflow. You see, when we put him first, our serving becomes that outflow of our lives. And as our our gaze is fixed upon him, our serving gets that tweak where we're, we're wanting and motivated to represent our God well. As Christians, we live receiving and revealing the nature and heart of God towards others in our day-to-day life. This is what we are motivated with when we serve, that, that our lives would be a reflection of the one and only true servant. This is what true servant-heartedness is. It is so much more than just simply doing the stuff. When we serve, we get an opportunity to represent Jesus and his heart and his nature. I think it's also, so I've been talking, I guess, a bit about our motives and why we might serve. I think that it's also worth just looking at our identity when we consider being servant-hearted. It's way easier in my life, and you may find the same, way easier than I would like to get caught up in finding my identity in what I do, in my job description, in trying to 
use that to kind of prove my worth to God in my serving. Even when, I I think that happens even when we don't mean to, even if we are at times really aware of that and not wanting to find our identity in those things and in our serving and in what we do. I think as humans, it's, it's really easy to end up there. And one of the ways that I notice that in myself is that I just tend to feel a little bit more driven where that, when that's where I'm coming from. Um, and my performance failures feel much more weighty, like I'm trying to prove myself. I'll, I'll beat myself up a little bit more around my performance um, failures. I remember... Um, one of the piece of advice that Andrew gave me around even preaching, and I mean, as you would understand, if you've ever done any kind of public speaking sort of thing, um, you know, there are times where it hangs together well and there are times where it doesn't. And you kind of walk away thinking, oh, I could really have done that a bit better or I don't know that I quite communicated as well as I could have. And I remember Andrew saying to me, you know, regardless whether you think that you can you know, that it, that it was just one of those sermon, sermons where God's presence was really clear and you felt like you'd knocked it out of the park or whether it's one of those ones that was just kind of a bit of a humble offering and remembering that he can talk through a donkey as well as me. Um, that whatever, it's an offering to the Lord and you worship afterwards. You worship afterwards. You say, God, here I am regardless of whether you think that it was one of those moments that you might get a well done, good and faithful servant or a one of those, well, yeah, I, 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 I blessed your loaves and fishes. And I just think that that's really important for us to remember when we are thinking about our identity. You know, I, don't, I stand here first and foremost as his daughter. I wonder if that's what was going on for Martha. We won't turn there this morning, but I'm sure you're all familiar with the story and I definitely relate more as a Martha than I think of myself as a Mary. But I wonder whether her identity at that point, not all the time, but at that point was tangled up in serving and in her duties. And we're told that she was distracted, that's the word that's used, distracted with much serving. And I looked up what that Greek word for distracted means, and it means to be driven about mentally and to be over-occupied. I just thought that was very telling, driven about mentally and to be over-occupied. And Jesus calls her out on it. He says, Martha. In fact, he says, Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. Really, his invitation to her in that moment was, first things first, come and sit with me. You see, we are more to God than our ability to just do stuff. Our true identity through Jesus is as sons and daughters. You will all be familiar with Romans 15, which says, uh, Romans 8:15, sorry, which says, "For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, "Abba, Father." 
when this revelation begins to take hold in our life, it outworks itself in many ways, including the motives with which we serve. When we're secure as sons and daughters, we serve from a place of relationship rather than in order to earn our place. But whilst this revelation of sonship and identity um, in him brings a confidence and an assurance to us, and so it should, it is not an excuse to not serve. Would you turn with me to John 13? This is a familiar passage of scripture. Jesus is having intimate time with his disciples and this is the washing of their feet. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to point something out to you about this amazing God that we serve. So John 13, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What I want to draw to your attention this morning is that Jesus, knowing exactly who he was as the Son of God, that he had come from heaven in all its splendor and that he was returning there, stooped in service to wash feet for ones who were not even worthy to be sitting at the table with him. Philippians chapter 2, we read, Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A servant or a slave, by definition, has no rights. They are fully at the disposal of their master. And Jesus, knowing exactly who he is, knowing his father intimately and fully trusting in his father, gave up his rights. His identity as a son did not lead to a sense of entitlement but rather to a freedom to be fully submitted to the will of his father and to bow low and serve. And so it's really important for us, if, if anybody had the right to feel entitled, it was Jesus. If anybody had the right to demand to be served, it, it was him. And yet his example to us was to bow low. When our identity is secure as sons and daughters 
and considered in the light of who Jesus is, then we won't be acting with entitlement and looking for recognition and promotion to sit on his left and right hand, so to speak. Instead, we will be submitted to the Father as servant-hearted children. And that is what we're called to be, servant-hearted kids. There isn't any doubt that being a servant is costly and sacrificial and humbling. It can be hard work and inconvenient. It can also be incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. Sometimes we get to see the fruits of our labours and sometimes we don't. I uh, was listening to um, a story recently about um, a man who had served, he and his wife had served 40 years as missionaries in Africa and they were retiring and returning to the United States and um, they came home by ship. And it turned out that on the same ship as them was the President of the United States. And when they pulled up into the docks, there was, of course, a lot of pomp and fanfare because the President of the United States was arriving home. The red carpets were out, the crowds were out. And so, of course, the President was um, greeted with great fanfare. Everybody gradually got off the boat and were met by friends and family until there was just simply this missionary and his wife standing on the docks. And he couldn't quite help himself. He lamented to the Lord, you know, God, I've poured out 40 years of my life for you and we've come home and there's nobody to greet us and to thank us. And he heard the Lord's voice very clearly. You're not home yet. When you examine your own life, you may be aware sorry, of areas of serving in which you are easily expressing worship and devotion to the Lord, where it feels easy and it feels like it's in line with your giftings, you feel passionate about what he's asked you to do. You may also identify areas of service that the Lord has called you into that feel mundane and ordinary and your response is one of humility, obedience and discipline and sometimes it's hard. I also suspect that in a group this size, there will be people who have burned out serving or that perhaps you've observed somebody else as they've sacrificed themselves in the name of Christian service. And so as we finish this morning, I just want to get a little bit practical. I'm somebody who likes to know, what does this look like in my life? How, how do I apply this? How do we juggle all of these kind of tensions about being about our father's business as a servant-hearted kid in a way that's healthy and sustainable? How do we navigate that tension where, as a church, we really value that sense of rest and being able to rest in the presence of God whilst not making excuses not to serve? 
And so I don't have all the answers to that conundrum, but these are just a few things that I want us as we finish today to consider. So number one, examine your motivations. You know, you, like me, might recognise a whole lot of reasons that you serve that don't quite line up with God-centred serving. Be honest with yourself. Do you have patterns in your life where you repeatedly get overcommitted easily? Or conversely, do you have patterns in your life where you stand back and you don't get involved and you make excuses and opt out? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Like he is so willing to talk to us and to speak to us and to just help us work through these things. And the other thing I'd really encourage you to do is invite someone trusted or a few trusted people into your life. If this is something where you're noticing there's a few issues there, that's something I've had to do in my life. I've absolutely at times needed input to help untangle myself from my own unhealthy patterns that then leak out onto how I actually serve, where I get tangled up in my own emotions or my need to rescue or my need to be needed that, that then overflows into serve, my serving and, and actually muddies the waters. So if you need to get input into that, seek it out. Number two... I would encourage you to cultivate rhythms of serving and rest. Jesus modelled this balance perfectly. His, his ministry life was full on, three years. And yet we often read about him, just not necessarily how long it was for, but him drawing aside or spending the night praying and allowing himself to be um, ministered to and filled back up. I think that a great illustration of sustainable rhythms in serving is our breathing. You see, we can't sustain life only breathing out or only breathing in. You might like to try it. Um, we need to breathe in and out. And so it is with our serving or our work and our rest. I found this... Um, quote during the week in my preparations that I think expresses it well, slightly old-fashioned language, in fact, a couple of the words I needed to look up, but um, bear with me. A Christian resembles a reservoir in as much as he must have an inlet and an outflow. If he becomes too enamoured with the activities of Christianity that he is always attempting to give out without stopping to take in, spiritual emptiness and bankruptcy are the results. But if he degenerates into a dreamy mystic, decrying all forms of Christian activity under the cover of zeal for larger reception of divine truth, spiritual gluttony will be the result and his ultimate loss will be great. Many of you... Um, particularly the women here will know that one of my favourite passages of scripture um, is in Matthew 11, um, particularly in the paraphrase of the message. Um, and I want to read it to you because something new jumped off the page at me this time and um, that I just want to highlight. So this is Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. 
get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and rightly, lightly. And what really um, jumped off the page for me this time is that sense of how it reflects both rest and work. I'll show you how to take real rest, but walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. God has no intentions of us being able to serve separate from relationship with him and with the enabling of his Holy Spirit. Thirdly, have clear boundaries. Now, this is a huge topic and it's one we um, ran the Keep Your Love On course recently and it's certainly something that we wrestled together with, particularly how it pertains to serving. How do you keep boundaries but not end up being selfish? And there's no doubt that having boundaries has been used to justify selfish living. But I would also like to suggest that boundaryless serving is a recipe for burnout. So by definition, boundaries keep harmful things out, but it also keeps good things in. And you will notice throughout Jesus' ministry, he absolutely set boundaries. So if we are to consider cultivating a healthy approach to our serving, it's just worth briefly touching on this. As I said, it's a huge topic. I just want to highlight two things around this. One is be clear in your priorities and your values. Be clear in your priorities and values. That includes your priority relationships, your time, your energy, and your resources. What are you already committed to right now? And how has God been directing you? It's so much better to be clear on your priorities and get good at communicating them to yourself as well as to other people rather than constantly having to backpedal or be on the defensive and, and be reactive. You see, when we know our priorities, it helps then inform our choices. You know, what God's been speaking to in our life what he's about in our life in, in a particular season. And so then what it does is it helps us with our yeses and nos so that rather than being caught on the hop, because we already know what God's asked of us, we already know what our priority relationships are, where the priority at the moment he's calling us to with all of our resources, it makes it much easier and clear for us to then give a good yes and a good no. I have to be honest, some of the worst boundary-busting choices that I've ever made have been when I've been in a rush and, poorly th and I'm poorly thinking through my yes or my no. And so linked to that idea of your priorities and values is just that you do have a clear yes and no. So is your yes well-placed and in line with God's priorities in your life now? Not, not 10 years ago, not um, for the future, now. You see, 
a yes <coughs> should actually be considered in the light of your priorities. And yes is as much a boundary word as no. I think we think of setting boundaries as being no, 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 no. But actually, yes is also a boundary word. See, for every yes you actually give, you will be saying some no's because you just by nature you can't do everything. And so it might look something like this. I'm saying yes to family dinner on Wednesday night. That means that as a result, I have to say no to that meeting that somebody's asked me to go to on the same night. So when our priorities and our values, when we've actually sat down and considered those in an intentional way, it just helps us not get swept up in yeses and nos that are misplaced. And then finally, avoid all or nothing thinking. All or nothing thinking often happens when we can't serve in the way that we think we should or want to or that it's not as perfect as we would like it to be. It may come up as part of that whole pendulum swing between over-serving and then living with a sense of entitlement and because we can't get the balance, we just do nothing. Um, or your definition of being servant-hearted may just be too narrow. You see, it's worth remembering that serving is not only church-centric. It's whole of life. Our servant-heartedness is, is given expression to in every aspect of our life. And you may be in a season where serving is predominantly expressed in serving your family, your spouse, your children, your siblings or ageing parents. Girls, don't put me in that category. Or you may be serving in your neighbourhood or at your school or in your workplace. I want to encourage you, rather than having that all or nothing thinking, start where you can and do what you can. There are lots of things that we can't do in various seasons of life. For me, serving looked very different when I had little babies at home to how it looks for me now. We read in Mark 14, and again, just in the interest of time, we won't turn there this morning, but there's the account of the woman with the alabaster jar. And we often view this account in the context of worship, and, and it is. But I would like to suggest that it's actually serving and worship in action. Because this is what Jesus says about her. He says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And what I just really want to highlight there is that what Jesus is saying is she has done what she could. She has served me. She's done what she could with what she had. I do think of it in terms of loaves and fishes. It's a terminology that I use in my life a lot. Here's my loaves and fishes, God. This is what i got in my hand at the moment, and it's all yours. Um, so... Serve with what you have in your hands right now and be responsive to the prompting of the Lord. Ask him, where can I serve today? Where can I serve this week? And look for opportunities within your life. What's right in front of you right now? I have to say that I wrestled around a lot with 
preaching a sermon on serving. I, I don't, I'm not comfortable with leaving you with a should message or um, stirring up a sense of obligation, I guess. But really my hope today is that we are challenged and stirred to spur one another on to love and good works, that we would recognise that as God's children, we are called to be servant-hearted people because this is how greatness in God's kingdom is measured, by how well we love and serve. And so this morning, as we finish, I just want to encourage you to examine your heart and your life in this area of true service and to ask yourself, do I represent Jesus, the servant king, well? Can I ask you to stand? Heavenly Father, we just stand before you this morning as and in the full knowledge that we are your sons and daughters. We also do in the full knowledge, God, of who you are, that you are the King of Kings, that you are the Majestic One. And we are just so in awe, God, of you. And Father, I just really pray that as we fix our gaze upon you, as we seek God to live a life of worship and devotion to you, that God, that would have an overflow into the way that we serve that you would find in us that we are a servant-hearted people. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would challenge and encourage us, that you would be at work in us. Lord, as we prayed right at the beginning this morning, would you complete the good work that you have begun in us? And Father, would our lives be a reflection of who you are? We commit this week to you, God. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are doing and that you would help us to be about your business this week. In all that we do, God. We seek to honour you. In Jesus' name, amen.